Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm director of ECFR. And this week I am talking to Ivan Krostev, who is a board member of ECFR, a founding member of ECFR. He's also a permanent fellow at the Institute of Human Sciences in Vienna and uh, is currently a visiting fellow professor, something at Oxford University at St. Anthony's College, which is where I'm sitting with him now, to talk about um, a very interesting article he's just written about the West German model for Ukraine. Um, thank you very much for joining me, Ivan. Thank you for inviting. So, Ivan, we've been talking a lot on the podcast about the situation in Ukraine and where we're at two years into the war and how um, people are thinking differently about what success and failure for different parties would look like at, at the moment. And you wrote a very interesting piece where you put forward a different way of thinking about it. Do you want to um, explain a bit where the thinking comes from and what you mean when you talk about the, the West Germany model? Listen, the most important is that we will go back. And of course, uh, the first question was when the war started. Uh, and Ukrainians rightly basically figured out that it didn't start it in 2022. It started in 2014. But also it's quite important to understand that it was not one and the same war. And even the war that started in 2022 and the war that we have now is not the same war. Uh, in 2014, basically... Russia lost Ukraine as a result of the Maidan revolution, and they decided to save what they can. And as a result of it, they annexed Crimea. They basically put under the control part of the Donbass, but uh, they were not ready yet uh, to uh, move more. And they wanted to, they still hope that they can have Ukraine politically controlled by them. And this is why keeping the territorial integrity of Ukraine was important for them, because they wanted the Donbass voters to vote on the Ukrainian elections. And this was Minsk. Uh, but then basically when uh, the, the special operation started, the special operation still was much more about Ukraine. And it was very much based on the fact that the Ukrainian government was perceived as popular and the Ukrainian army was perceived as weak. And they believed that in a week they're going to end up with a pro-Moscow government in Kiev. All this ended in September of 2022, where Russia went on a partial mobilization. When you have a special operations, you do not mobilize. So it, my major argument goes that we're in a different war. And different, this war is not against Ukraine. This is on the territory of Ukraine. But Russian leadership believes that they're in a civilizational conflict with the West. And this is very much, in my view, uh, also changing the way that we should think about the war. What is a defeat and what is a victory is <laughs> not simply basically in the context of what, uh, uh, what you're seeing there. Uh, and this is why when it started, it was very much about territory. Uh, but it was, in my view, one of the advisors of the Ukrainian president that put it best when it said, it's not a war about land. It is about uh, the war about the right of Russia to live in the past. And I do believe that the right is a key word and not simply the past. The idea that you basically uh, try to have a totally different idea of how Europe works and what you're doing. This I'm saying this because, and this is to go directly to uh, uh, to your question, you can have a very flexible idea of what is victory, but you should have a very clear idea of what is defeat. 
And this is going to be true for Ukraine, but now this is particularly true for the West, because in the eyes of the Russians, but also in the eyes of the most people in the non-Western world, which you see from our polling, uh, the war in Ukraine is a proxy war between the West and uh, Russia. So what is defeat? What basically the West cannot allow if the situation on the ground goes wrong? And this is my major argument, is that what we cannot allow is uh, Russia's idea to turn Ukraine into a kind of a similar image or basically mirror of the Israelis' view of the Palestinian state, a kind of a big, uh, depopulated, demilitarized state, which is at the center of Europe and which is going to be, uh, in my view, totally, totally destroying European projects. So the only way to do this is basically to tell to the Russians, okay, if you really believe that you're going to control part of these territories, be prepared and you know that as soon as possible, Ukraine should become the member of NATO. And it means this was the West German scenario. We are not so much discussing about the place of the border, we're discussing about the nature of the border. And if you're seeing this as a Cold War, it is going to be a Cold War. But it's very interesting because at the beginning, you know, if you go back before February 2022, and there were all these discussions about Ukraine, a lot of Western countries were trying to come up with some sort of settlement, which saw exactly what you're describing yeah. <laughs> as the solution, a, a neutral Ukraine that wouldn't necessarily join um, uh, NATO where you had a degree of demilitarization. And now um, that model seems to have died in the minds of of, of all Western leaders. Um, totally. And the Russian narrative about being at war with the West rather than just at war with Ukraine has also been internalized by the West. Uh, but step by step, by the way, it was internalized now by the political leadership, yeah. but uh, still not by the population. The public doesn't think the that public does not think twice, and this is one of the major problems because fifty-three percent, if you remember, of the Russians and sixty-two percent of the Chinese perceive this as a Russia-West conflict because the majority of Europeans and the majority of the uh, Americans they still believe it's about Ukraine. But I do believe that what is happening, particularly in the last months, and this was a series of events. The killing of Navalny or the death of Navalny, about how exactly, basically, and how he died, we don't know. But in a certain way, he was there, basically, to die. Secondly, putting uh, acting European prime minister on the wanted list of the Russian government. Kaya Kaya Kalas. Uh, having basically this kind of a very tough rhetoric uh, is increasing the fears of some of the Russia's neighbors, members of the EU and NATO, that probably Russian government can decide to test uh, the Article 5 for a small conflict. So basically, but moving it in a way that is going to make it very difficult, basically, for the European Union and for NATO to stay where it is. And plus, you have the Trump factor, who very clearly make it clear that for him, if this is the war between Russia and the West, for him, basically, this is the war in which he's not interested to take part. So I'm saying all this because the problem with the West German scenario, now people see it, oh, they said it's more difficult now. It was very difficult. We should, we should explain what the West German scenario said, is. The West German do. scenario is the following. Uh, as you know, basically, uh, uh, Germany was uh, divided on four zones after the end of the war. At, at some point, uh, the Western powers decided to consolidate their own zone. Uh, they basically went beyond the idea that it is possible to have a unified neutral Germany and they went very much towards Germany that was totally integrated in the Western institutions. I mean, NATO, I mean also after that European Union and they basically tried to develop it while never recognizing the legitimacy of East Germany, hoping that one day, basically, the country 
country can be reunified, but the reunification of uh, Germany was not perceived as the immediate goal, but it's much more seen uh, uh, in time and perceived as the result of the collapse of the communist system. And this is very important because imagine that even if the Ukrainian troops manage to liberate all the territories, this is not the end of the war. The end of the war can end up only if President Putin is not there and if the person who is there wants to have a different policy. And the fact that you have a nuclear power on the other side, of course, makes the situation very difficult. What was my major argument is that in Europe, there are people who are talking about negotiations, and this is very natural when you have a war, this always talks. These people who are against Ukraine getting into NATO because they believe that this can lead to de-escalation. In my group, Particularly, these people should be the one that is very much pushing now for Ukraine getting into NATO because this is the only way for the Ukrainians to accept any type of a loss of uh, territory and any type of the negotiations, keeping in mind that at this moment Russia controls territory and also take up a hand uh, on the Ukrainian front. And uh, this kind of a change, who should support the West German scenario? Because uh, is something that, in my view, is uh, critical, at least for my argument. Uh, countries that really believe that they should be a settlement, they should realize that there are only two ways for Ukraine to agree to lose territories. I think this is going to be totally defeated by Russia. But believe me, this is also going to be a total defeat for the West, or if they're going to be a type of a security guarantee and integration that is allowing for the Ukrainian leadership to believe that in the long term, they can have the outcome that basically where Germany got. So we should talk a bit more. I mean, you're not really talking about losing territories. What you're talking about in, the, in a kind of de jure sense, what you're yeah. talking about is creating a difference between the bits of Ukraine which to which Article 5 and to which the security guarantees would apply, which are the, the bits which are controlled by Ukraine, so that the West doesn't end up in a in a kind of shooting war with Russia. From totally. The Listen, it means that basically, because there is a risk, at least uh, some of the military that we have been speaking to on the Western side, that Russia now, also because of the failure of the United States and Europe to provide enough weapons to, to the Ukrainian army, there is a real kind of a, a risk that they there could be a Russian breakthrough on the Ukrainian front. And this is going to create a very, very difficult situation uh, uh, for the West because timing is something that, unfortunately, we are not great at. <laughs> and also Russia managed to create uh, a war economy. 30% of the Russian budget now is spent, uh, one third of the Russian budget is spent totally on the war-related issues. This is not the case in Europe. So my suggestion is already now in Washington meeting to say the territory that is controlled by the Ukrainian government, we want Ukraine with this territory to enter NATO. At the same time, it, nobody is going to recognize the territory that Russia occupies as Russian territory. This is illegal and by the way, Russia violated all international laws. Uh, but we're making very clear that, well, NATO is not going to start a kind of offensive war against Russia. Uh, NATO is not going to allow and basically is not going to tolerate to see the Russian troops in front of Kiev once again. So when we were uh, preparing, well, well, not us, obviously, we weren't preparing for <laughs> different governments were preparing for the last NATO summit in Vilnius. There was a very damaging split because some European countries were pushing very hard to offer Ukraine a, a, um, a, a quick pathway to membership. And the, the uh, Biden administration and certain European countries like Germany were very skeptical about that. The US now, they're very keen to make sure that the Washington summit is not a repeat of the Vilnius summit. And the Ukrainians obviously were very disappointed and very uh, loquacious about their disappointment last time around, which meant that uh, what should have been a, a display of unity ended up 
um, looking like it, it could uh, have shown the limits of Western resolve. What do you think needs to happen this time? If you're because I think the, those that scepticism in Washington in Berlin is is not disappeared, and ironically, the um, I mean, most of their energy is going into trying to to get the Ukrainians not to call for 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 NATO membership in the same way that they were uh, in the run up to Vilnius this time. No, you're totally right, and to be honest, I don't believe that uh, getting Ukraine into NATO, seen from now, is the most likely scenario of what is going to happen. Uh, but here is the difference. A year ago, basically getting Ukraine into NATO was perceived as a kind of a policy that is going to escalate the tensions with Russia. And it was going to be perceived as aggressive. And many people in Ukraine and outside were basically seeing NATO joining the Ukrainians in liberating territories. Uh, what I'm suggesting is something slightly different. In a certain way, if there are going to be force of negotiations, Ukraine cannot negotiate from the position of weakness because basically this is going to destroy the legitimacy of the democratic government. And basically this is going to destroy the Western perspective of Ukraine. So from this point of view, I, uh, while I know that neither President Biden nor many other leaders are particularly enthusiastic about this, uh, we should also can signal to the Russians that we understand that the war is not with Ukraine, it's also with us. And if this is the case, we should try to see where is the red line. And this is not exactly where the border is going to be. This is about the nature of the border. Uh, and we cannot stay in the position in which we are now. And the position is that on one level, we want to Ukraine to win. On the other, we want to avoid the war. It's very difficult to win the war if you don't believe that you're participating in it. And we believe that we are not participating. This is not how the Russians see the situation. And this is also creating a problem for our public opinion. Because sustaining support for the war is going to be much more clear if people understand that what that is their war. Are talking is their war. It's about the core interest of some of the NATO and EU member states. Look at the both, but forget even about Baltic republics in Poland. Look about Sweden. Look about Norway. These countries are talking about the war with Russia in the way they had never been talking before. And my major argument is that negotiations based on the West German scenario is the <laughs> strategy of de-escalation and not the strategy of escalation, because the Russian escalation pressure has very much increased uh, in the last, uh, particularly in the last two months. And if they're going to have military successes on the ground, we can imagine that this can continue. Also, this type of a timing, in my view, is trying to reassure and try to make the NATO issue much more central in the American election debate. Yeah. Uh, because the biggest, the other kind of a major story on the European side is that uh, we have the budgets, but we didn't manage to create uh, a European war economy. We don't have a European defense sector. Uh, to a great extent, uh, the capabilities of the Europeans are very much dependent on their cooperation with, uh, with the Americans. So this is going to be a much more stronger message. It's not an easy decision. And of course, I don't believe that this is what uh, Russians are going to jump and uh, basically uh, start celebrating because, as you know, not getting Ukraine out of NATO was their major, their major goal. But we cannot stay with the situation in which they believe that they're in a war with NATO and NATO believe that this is just the war between the Ukrainians and Russians. So earlier on in the conversation, you talked about how a lot of European countries, NATO members, are worried that Putin might start to test Western resolve and test Article 5 and see how, how serious it is. I mean, this is one of the other big things that always gets debated when people talk about NATO enlargement. Um, is there a danger because you know the one country that they're already testing <laughs> article 5 in uh, is ukraine 
So therefore, um, how do you relate this kind of fear of of, uh, of testing Article 5 and of, of um, making sure that the Russians really believe in it and that the deterrence is, is credible with this idea of, of actually creating a larger target and one which, which is already more entangled with Russia? Listen, the story here is that uh, I don't believe that many European leaders start to uh, fear the syndrome of the boiled frog. Yeah. So suddenly, basically, step by step, Russia is moving, crossing certain borders. We're talking a lot. And by the way, this major gap between rhetoric and actual performance on the Western side, if I was a Russian leader, I also was going to be basically tempted to test. On the other side, we have, at least for the moment, a lot of reasons to believe that the Russian army, which is far from the cartoonish view that was created to it, uh, for example, a year ago, uh, is not particularly enthusiastic. Uh, to meet uh, a NATO and basically uh, to encounter, to encounter NATO forces because uh, Russia managed to create a war economy. Russia basically managed to stabilize its forces, but they're not outperforming. They have a man problem on their own. Uh, and as a result of it, uh, uh, nevertheless, that Russia basically looks much stronger than it looked, uh, for example, a year ago. Uh, part of its strengths come from the fact that it is all the time testing and what they're getting is even tougher rhetoric, but some of this tougher rhetoric is exposing weakness. Uh, I am not of uh, the great admirers of Donald Trump's felt, but once he said something that in my view is valid, weakness is an invitation to aggression, particularly when you have uh, a political figure like President Putin, who is uh, very much improvising. <laughs> He's basically trying to see how far he can go. And to be honest, the only red line that we can put is that because if you're going to get them into Ukraine, and the Ukrainian army is functioning currently, they're fighting, they're fighting on their own. They succeeded for two years to do things that in the beginning of the war, there was not a single Western leader who believed that they can do it. To be honest, probably they were going to succeed more if they have get what we have promised to give them. Yeah. So as a result of it, this is also giving much more motivation to the Ukrainian side because there is something of our view on Ukraine which I found really troubling. When the war started, the idea was that the Ukrainians, they cannot sustain themselves for more than six weeks, that it's a totally dysfunctional state, that they can achieve nothing. And then in the last year, the idea was that they're superhumans. All this loss of people, all this kind of a major disruption of the social fabric of society, the fact that almost 7 million people are out of the country, that you have so many dead people that this is not going to have any effect and they can fight forever like this. Uh, I don't believe that the long war on this level of intensity is something that really Europe can sustain for a long time, both on the Russian and the Ukrainian side. And this is why, in my view, if there is anybody who said we should negotiate, the problem is from where we start. And for me, from where we start is to say, there is one thing that we're never going to negotiate. And this is the Western choice and the democratic choice of uh, Ukraine. Please, for the moment, territory is controlled by the Ukrainian government. We're never going to allow basically this to be discussed by the Russians. And the other paradox about what you're suggesting is that, you know, you're suggesting at a time when in Washington, there are lots of plans for what they call a dormant NATO, a burden shifting rather than burden sharing. And it's a period where everybody uh, is nervous that the essential feature behind Article 5, which is 
the credibility of, of NATO as a military alliance might uh, come unstuck in the event of a, of a Trumpian victory in the elections. How do you see that relating to, to this debate about the West German scenario? Listen, the problem with the West German scenario is that in Europe, we know for sure that there is one army which is ready to fight Russians, and it was fighting successfully for two years. And this is the Ukrainian army. So from this point of view, basically, if everybody was free rider on the United States, and I don't know that the Americans has a great uh, argument when they said that the fact that after 2014, most of the European uh, uh, NATO member states in Europe do not change significantly anything in their defense budget. This is the real sin of what happened. Because on one level, you're saying, oh, the international order is over, all this and that. If you don't know, if you're coming from Mars and just you're trying to understand what was happening in Europe in the last decade, just reading the defense budgets of the countries, you're going to understand that the war in Ukraine in 2014 was totally neglected. It was much more the pressure coming from Trump presidency that pushed some of these countries to increase their budgets. We're in a different situation. You can see Poland basically with the budget of 4% of their uh, uh, GDP being invested in, uh, in, in defense. But it is the time factor. And I'm very much afraid that President Putin see the window of vulnerability and the window of opportunity for himself. He can try to do it because if Ukraine is really going to be broken, then some of the NATO and EU member states really are going to freak out. Some of them are small countries with a very problematic history with Russia. And they think Russia in the way that always existed in their nightmares. And as a result of it, I do believe that showing this kind of a strength even more in order to go, this should go through Senate. So basically, NATO membership for Ukraine is possible only with a sizable number of uh, Republicans suggesting it. It's not a decision of one administration. I don't know if also this is changing totally the calculations uh, for President Trump, because this is one thing to say, this is not my war. It's Biden's war. It's Biden's war. But then basically, if Ukraine is in NATO and if basically Ukraine is not going to be defended, uh, probably it's not his war, but it is going to be his failure. And I do believe that from this point of view, Russians were always till now trying to escalate and we had been always at least believing that you are de-escalating uh, in order to start any type of successful negotiations for ending the war, not for peace. Uh, this is basically that you should show that you also have a capacity to escalate. And I was reading uh, a piece in the New York and I was very much uh, struck by a command uh, which was done by Mustafa Naim, one of the heroes of the Maidan revolution, the current head of the reconstruction agency in Kiev. He said, there is one good thing about Second World War. It ended. And my idea that we can basically bet it on a long, never-ending war with a high intensity that can go for one or two or three years, and which is going to be totally devastating for Ukraine, is also a risky scenario. Okay, well, I think it's been a, it's been a fascinating discussion. I think the debate about the West German model is definitely going to become something which we hear more and more of, uh, both in the run-up to the Washington summit and, and beyond. Um, we will carry on talking about all these topics on the podcast. If people are interested in, in the European defense issues, which uh, Ivan was talking about, you should listen to the earlier podcast that we did with Gemi Grand um, when we launched our European defense initiative, when we go into some granular detail about all these issues. But for now, 
Um, I think that takes us to the end of, of this discussion, but there is one thing left to do on this podcast, and that's our bookshelf segment. What's on your bookshelf at the moment, Ivan? Listen, I was uh, now back in Oxford to basically have uh, much more to read. But one of the books that I was reading was this How CVO Starts books uh, uh, and how they end. And uh, I'm saying this because one of the very important things that I got from this book is not some of the new information. Most of the information was there. But one of the biggest problems, particularly of the United States, but I do believe this is also true in Europe, is that we're looking around the world, we're analyzing the problem of others, and we said it never can be our problem. And now I do believe that we realize, and in this book, basically, it was very clearly shows that problem of others very easily can become our problems. Our problem as economic problem, as political problem, and now also as a military problems. So to try to try to look at the problems of the others as our problems too, in my view, is going to be quite uh, enlightening. So that's uh, How Civil Wars Start by Barbara F. Walter. We'll put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, please return to whatever platform you use to download it and subscribe to future episodes. And while you're there, it would be wonderful if you could give us a positive rating and a five-star review. But for now, from Ivan Krustev and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of our podcast is Anand Sundar, and our editor is Maria Farrow-Sarats. Mm-hmm.